The title of the sermon today is A King's Witness to the Ends of the World. I want you to see that in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8. You know, I love that this church has a special focus this time of year on uh, missions. It's such a joy to be with you to do that. And normally during this time of year, we focus on what happened kind of in the, in the beginning, right, of when Christ first came to earth. But uh, this morning what I want to do is actually have a look at the end of the, what happened just before Christ ascended. And he ascended as victorious king. I mean, normally we look at, you know, what happened in, in the baby stage. But now we're going to look at what happened in the end here, in the final instructions, the final words of Jesus. So just to give us a little bit of context for that this morning, this is what we're going to read is taking place about um, about 40 days after the death and resurrection of Christ. Put yourself into the mind of the disciples right now that heard these words that Jesus is about to say live. They had been a witness to his ministry over the last three years. Think about it. The disciples had heard the great commandment right from the lips of Jesus. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. They, they heard Jesus say that. They also heard the Great Commission. Right? To go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the promise, behold, I will be with you always. They, they heard Jesus say these things. And just before, actually, we get this from Luke 24, just before they're going up to hear the final words of Jesus, Jesus said to them, Luke 24, 49, But I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're enclosed with power from on high. So the disciples are waiting for this power, this promised power that's sent from the Father. And now Jesus has brought them up here to the Mount of Olivet. And he's about to say his very, very last words to them. His final instructions. These are the words that Jesus says just before he ascends into heaven. It's a big deal. Allow me to read it to you this morning. Acts chapter 1, I'll start in verse 6. It says this, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Which is a fair question. They're looking for an earthly king still. And he said to them, it's not, it is not for you to know the times of the season that the father has fixed by his own authority. Now here's our passage for today. But, verse 8, but, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to do what? Well, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Now, I'll bet you probably have not considered this particular text in the context of Christmas before. We don't typically go to this text as a Christmas text, but what I want to demonstrate this morning, what I want to show you from God's Word, is a is something just magnificent as we see a connection to the first coming of Christ to now and what happened in those circumstances. It's magnificent as we see a direct connection from Mary and then Simeon and from Jesus' first words to his uh, last words, listen, there, there, there is a promise here that I want you to see that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There, there is a, a string or there is a, a thread that we want to see in Luke's writing of what happens to people 
when the power of the Holy Spirit comes uh, upon him. I want you to see that in the story of Mary and Simeon and Jesus himself. So I grew up on the mission field. I grew up, uh, my, my, my parents were church planters in, the, in Holland and the Netherlands. And in the 80s, um, missionaries typically didn't have a whole lot of money to going around. And so we were back on furlough in Canada and it was Christmas time, and I have such a distinct memory about this season in our life because we had a Christmas tree, but nothing to decorate the Christmas tree with as we were back home for a year on furlough. And so whether this was just an activity to keep me busy or whether this was just how poor missionaries deck their tree, and maybe some of you have done this before, but have you ever strung popcorn onto a string? Have you done that when you were a kid? Yeah, Okay. There's some other missionary kids here, maybe. And you, you know, and so you're eating half the bowl of popcorn as you're doing that, and you're supposed to be putting string. And that kept me busy for a couple of hours as we made this popcorn string around the Christmas tree. Listen, this morning, I want you to see, I don't want to call it a popcorn string, but I want you to see this thread, this string in Scripture of what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit is upon people during the incarnation. So if you'll allow me that liberty this morning, uh, I want you to see three things. I want you to see God's power on display in the incarnation. I want you to see God's power on display in, in Christ. And then finally, I want you to see God's power on display in us as we obey Scripture, as we obey His Word. So let's turn with me then. So Acts 1 is our main text, but we're going to do a little bit of running back and forth in Scripture in Luke's Gospel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke 1 Verse 26, what I want you to see here is God's power on display in the incarnation of Christ, particularly through Mary's uh, response. Let me, let me read it for you here. Uh, Luke 1, 26. You guys there? 126. Love hearing pages turn. So encouraging. Luke 1, 26 says this. In the month of the angel Gabriel uh, was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. So Nazareth was a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it wasn't a t- you would think that if Christ was returning, he would come to Jerusalem, which is the, the capital city, the main city. No, he's coming to, to Nazareth. Now, I'm Canadian, so I know what the equivalent of Nazareth is in Canada. And I don't know what it is in the States, and I don't want to take a risk here, but maybe, I don't know, maybe Buffalo, right? With Buffalo. <laughs> Anybody from Buffalo? I mean, Buffalo's only 45 minutes south of us, and I'm like, nothing good comes out of Buffalo, especially the Bills. But, but... <laughs> Anyways, it's just an, it's a nowhere town. And here's what it says, verse 27. To a, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. He had royal lineage. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, now listen, this is an angel appearing in front of a, a 14-year-old teenager. And listen to what he says to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And of course, but she's greatly troubled. Well, of course she is. She's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the throne of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be, a, there will be no end. Like, look at the kingdom language here. It's beautiful. So Mary, upon hearing this, she asks the right question. Her response is, 
how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a biological question. And here she's an angel of the Lord is telling her, you're gonna be pregnant. And she's saying, This is not possible. I'm pure. I'm 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 a virgin. And right now I'm scared. How is this possible? How, what are you talking about? How can this be? I mean, put yourself into the mind of a 14-year-old a teenager. That's what tradition has her as about a 14-year-old teenager at this point. So she's saying, how can this be? Now look at how the angel Gabriel responds to her. You know, she was scared here. I mean, she, she has good reason to be afraid here. We can see that the angel Gabriel appeared to other people in Scripture as well. I mean, he, uh, he had a appeared um, to Zechariah just a few months earlier. Zechariah was absolutely afraid of what the angel Gabriel was, was saying. Not only that, that this angel now uh, appeared earlier in the Old Testament to Daniel, the lion tamer. And Daniel, Scripture says that he fell down to his face out of fear. So it would be it's a fearful thing to be in the presence of the angel of the Lord, right? And here Mary's asking him a question you know, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Here's the angel's response. Verse 35, read it with me. And the angel answered her, look at, look at this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this child to be born will be called Holy and the Son of, of God. Do you, see, do you see this language here? This is what we just read in Acts 1, verse 8. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. We see the, the Holy Spirit is upon her, and the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. You know, that word overshadow there is a really, really cool word. Scholars point out that the, the, the Greek translation of that work in the Old Testament, so the Greek um, Old Testament, that word overshadow appears there as the presence of God in the sanctuary. It, Luke uses this same word again on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when God's presence is amongst them on the Mount during the Transfiguration. It's, God's, it's, it's God himself, the holiness, his, it, all of who he is, overshadowing Mary. That's what it's like to have the Holy Spirit upon you. Listen, it's, it's, it's beautiful here. What we see here is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all at work simultaneously in Mary. It's spectacular when we see it. You see it in this text? Now consider something this morning. Consider this. Mary just got promised that she would carry in her womb the second person of the Trinity. Imagine that promise. She would carry Christ, the Messiah, in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit who has overshadowed her. And we look at that and we say, that's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle. But get this. Mary got the second person of the Trinity. We get the third in us. I mean, that's the promise of the Holy Spirit upon you from Acts 1, chapter 8. That when you confess with your mouth that Jesus was Lord, when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the death, when you make that confession, the Bible says you're saved. And in that very moment when you're saved, when you're regenerated, when God takes your old heart out and puts in your brand new heart, you're repenting of sin, you're turning to Christ, you're saying for the first time, I believe 
in that very moment, the Holy Spirit comes to reside inside you. The third person of the Trinity in us. It's wild. It's spectacular. Mary had the second person of the Trinity. We get the third person of the Trinity. God in us. God with us. It's phenomenal. Now now look at Mary's response with me. Flip the page. Verse 38. Mary's considering these things. She's experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord overshadowing her. Look at her response. This is a 14-year-old teenager's response. Look at it. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Do you see Mary's response here? Like a right response to an overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit is you get really low, really quick. And your response is, I'm your servant. Right? Isaiah, same thing. Isaiah. He has experienced the Lord. What does he say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he doesn't even want to utter another word after that. Women experience of the presence of the Lord, our response, like Mary, should be humility. And then our response is, I will do according to your word. That's what we're doing as followers of Christ. We're doing according to his word as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. Listen, our job is to be but a witness to the king. And our job is to be humble servants who proclaim his message with power to the ends of the world. That's the instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that puts us in our proper place. We're humble servants to the Most High King. We're His witness in that. That's our job. It's as simple as that. So, can I ask you a question? As we consider that, as we think about that, I have a question. My question is this. What seemingly impossible task is God calling you to right now? Examine your heart. Examine your life. Examine your circumstances right now. Is there an impossible task that the Lord is calling you to that you're like, I can't do, I don't know how that's ever going to happen. Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one that you know is very far from the Lord and you're thinking, this is impossible. I don't see how that person's ever going to come to Christ. And you're, you're burdened with that. Maybe, can I suggest maybe there's a, a relationship that's broken Maybe a marriage, maybe between siblings, maybe between you know, a young person and their parents. Maybe there's a relationship that's fractured and it's seemingly impossible that that's never going to get fixed. Listen, listen. Examine your heart. What, what impossible task is the Lord calling you today? The Lord called Mary to an impossible task and her response was, I'm your servant. Let it be according to, to your word. Teenagers this morning. Teenagers, it was really fun to hang out uh, with you guys. I hung out with Riken and Haddon and a few other boys yesterday, handing out flyers in the neighborhood, inviting people to the Christmas concert this week. Um, teenagers, let me ask you a question this morning. What, what is the Lord calling you to as a teenager? That is a seemingly impossible task. Can you respond like Mary did? Like, do you see her purity in the passage here? Her response is, I'm a virgin. I'm pure. But also, do you see her faith here? Like Mary, Mary's been asked as a teenager to an impossible task. Listen, I'm a parent. I've got a 21-year-old son. I've got an 18-year-old son. I've got a 15-year-old daughter. I'm right in the middle of having teenagers. Teenagers, I know the world that you're in right now. And it's hard. 
I mean, this country has never seen a bombardment of filth and impurity, and we carry it around in our pockets most days. Like the temptation amongst teenagers is horrendous. It's never been like that in the history of this country. Teenagers, you're under an impossible pressure. What's your response? Is the Lord calling you to an impossible task? Listen, teenagers, listen to me right now. It's the, the power of the Holy Spirit that equips you to fight for purity. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It enables you to do an impossible task. Look what he did with Mary. Like, Let me ask you, could the Lord be calling you to an impossible task right now? Maybe God is preparing one or two or some of you to give your lives to Christ for the sake of the mission field. That's an impossible task. I believe in all my heart that there's a few teenagers here that will be raised up by this church to go out to the mission field. And I promise you, it's an impossible task outside of the work of the Holy Spirit on you. So teenagers, fight for purity. Learn from Mary here. Um, be willing and able to respond to an impossible task. Moms and dads, don't discount what the Lord might do through your holy power-infused child. It's hard. You know what? My kids are dumb. Like they really, I've parented them. I know that I'm dumb. And I've seen some of the stuff they do. They do dumb things. They do dumb things. And sometimes when a kid's say something like, you know, I really want to give my life to the mission field. I'm like, you're dumb. I don't see that happening. Right? We don't say that out loud, but we, it's hard, right? But we know our kids. We know all their sin. They know all of our sin. But listen, parents, don't discount what the Lord might do with your teenager for the sake of Christ in the mission field. Need I remind you, the greatest revival that ever happened in the history of this country came from a bunch of kids praying on a haystack. That resulted in the greatest outpouring of missionaries. That revival, the Haystack Revival, the greatest outpouring of missionaries in the history of this country. It was started by teenagers, young adults, praying. Spirit and fueled prayers. Parents, what our kids need from us is our approval to do that work and our encouragement to do that work. That's our job as parents. Let's encourage our kids to impossible, impossible tasks. Listen, Mary is a magnificent, magnificent example to us of what Acts 1-8 looked like in her life. I wanted you to see that this morning. I want you to see the power of God on display in the incarnation. But I also want you to see it this morning in the life of Simeon. Just turn with me maybe one page. Luke 2, verse 22. I want you to see how Simeon now responds to the power of the Holy Spirit on him. And I'm going to read this passage as well. Luke 2, 22. You guys there? Let me read it. It says this. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus they're talking about. This is now they're going from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem. Baby, Jesus is still an infant in the arms of Mary and Joseph, and they're doing according to Hebrew or Jewish tradition here. So they're presenting him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let me just stop there for a sec. As I was reading that this week, I'm like, what does this have to do with Christmas? Certainly it's the 12 days of Christmas, right? Am I right? Like, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. What is it? What? Sorry? 
A partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. I'm like, certainly it comes from this pastor. That's why I did a little Google search and I found out, lo and behold, listen to this, listen to this. This is this, this, this beloved little Christmas carol was written in London, 1780. Christ is symbolically represented as a mother partridge. Apparently. According to Google. You can fact check this later. Because the, the, the mother partridge or partridge is the only bird that's found in nature, that will die in order to protect its young. It's an image of Christ. I'm like, okay, well, what do the two turtle doves mean? Turns out the two turtle doves represent the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we have in the partridge Christ, and then in the turtle dove, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a representative of Scripture and Christ's work for us on the cross. Now, what does that have to do with our passage this morning? Absolutely nothing. Uh, I was really disappointed. I thought for sure it would point to this passage, and it didn't. And so here's what we need to know about two turtle doves. It was a poor man's offering. The two turtle doves represent like the minimum of what you would offer in the temple as a sacrifice. And we'll find out here in a second why. Let's just keep reading here now that we know that. Verse 25. Now we get introduced to Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the look at this. The Holy Spirit was upon him. There it is again. It's our second piece of popcorn that we're putting on our string this morning. There's a direct tie to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Now our ears are perked to this, right? Okay, what happens? We saw what happens with Mary. Now let's see what happens with Simeon. The Holy Spirit was upon him because it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, twice now, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. Verse verse 27. And he came, okay, look at this, in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Three times Luke here wants us to know that it was the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, him coming into the temple. See that there where it says that he came in the spirit into the temple? All that is, is he's being obedient to where the Holy Spirit is telling him to go. Sound familiar? Like how often have you been out in the neighborhood or talking to a coworker or talking to a friend and like in your inside, you're like, I need to share the good news of Christ with them. If I don't do this right now, it's disobedience. It's the same thing. It's the Holy Spirit telling you what to do and our response needs to be obedience. We just see that as an example here in Simeon. He's being obedient. He goes into the temple. Now, put yourself in the mind of uh, Mary and Joseph, actually. Think about them. So they, they now are bringing their child into the temple. They're doing what they would normally do as good um, Jewish observers of the Old Testament. They're bringing in their offering. It's a poor offering. Now, picture this. Picture this. They are carrying in their arms the king of the universe in their arms into his temple, into his holy city in their arms. They're carrying him in. These nobodies from nowhere, from Buffalo, 
so to speak. They're carrying him into the temple. No one would have even noticed that they were there. They're coming with a, a poor offering of a couple of turtle doves. The only other person that knew that they were going to be there was Simeon. And Simeon now has been praying and praying. He was promised that he would see the Savior Messiah. And we don't know how long, we don't know much about Simeon. We don't know how long he'd been praying when God made that promise. Let's assume it was a couple of years. Do you think that every day Simeon got up and said, Today, Lord, is today the day I'm going to see the Messiah? Is it today, Lord? Is it today? That would have been his prayer every day. He's longing, he's waiting to see the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, the day is here. He's told by the Spirit, go to the temple. Now just imagine, now he's holding the Savior of the world in his arms, in his temple, amongst his people. And his response is, now I can die. I have seen the salvation of the Lord. Look what else it says here. Now we get what, what Jesus' job description is going to be. Verse 31, sorry, sorry, verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, that's all ethnos, both Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 32, here's Jesus' job description. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and, a, and for glory to your people, Israel. What we can learn here from Simeon is why Jesus came. Jesus came as a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Acts 1.8, where it be to a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. What we're seeing here is that Jesus came to be a light. John 1, verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light that shines in the, in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. Jesus said in, in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. That's what Simeon is saying here. I'm the light of the world. This is what Jesus proclaims. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why? Because he's, he's the light of life to Gentiles and Jews alike. Listen, Simeon waited until his old age to see the Messiah. And his response was obedience. And his response was, now I can go ahead and die. Let me ask you this morning. Are you as excited as Simeon to see your Savior? Like how many mornings do we wake up? We're like, God, if you return today, or if you take me to be with you, that would be awesome. Probably not a lot of us. Like, are, are you prepared? Are you ready to see Jesus one day? Get this, get this. Simeon's holding the Savior of the world in his arms. He says, now I can die. The reality for us as followers of Christ, that one day, Jesus is going to hold us in his arms. And it's going to be awesome. Are we as excited about that as Simeon is to see his Savior here? I wonder, maybe some of you aren't excited to see Jesus at all because you don't want to give an account for your life. Because you've been living in darkness. And you probably are aware of that. And I want to challenge you, encourage you, plead with you this morning, come out of the darkness into the light. You know, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, come out of the dark if you've been hiding in there. Come talk to a pastor. Come talk to an elder. Come talk to a parent. Come talk to a friend. Listen, one day we are all going to walk into the presence of Christ. And my prayer is every single person in this place will wander into his loving arms 
and we will not hear, I don't know you. Because that's the reality for those who walk in darkness. Come, come into the light. Listen, are you praying like Simeon prays here? And listen, I realize I've already talked to the teenagers and the parents a little bit today. I want to talk to faithful seniors in this church. Bless you. Whoever you are in this church who have been faithfully playing, bless you for your years of faithfulness. Listen, some of you have been playing for decades now. You've been praying for decades for people to come to Christ. You've been praying for the pastor of this church and the elders of this church for a decade and a half now. Listen, do you know that it's the faith and spirit-fueled prayers of the saints that fuel the work of missions? You recognize how important that is? That this church is praying and fueling the work of the preaching of the gospel in this church and fueling elders who are leading this church and fueling missionaries who are going to the nations. It's the prayer of the good saints that are praying. The faithful one, don't stop praying. It's so needed. It's so needed. Listen, um, I have a huge heart for Romania. If you are here earlier, I talked about Romania a little bit. I could talk about Romania for hours. Um, been there a lot. Been there with my kids two summers. The second summer I was there with my kids. We got invited to go and visit the last leper colony in Europe. Believe it or not, in Eastern Europe, there's still one leper colony that's still operating. I mean, leprosy was eradicated back in the 80s. No one should have leprosy nowadays. But this is a colony that still exists. We went to go see a sister there who was, who was, who went into the leprosy colony when she was 14. By the time we're meeting her, she's 90. She has spent her entire life in this leprosy colony. And just picture whatever you can picture Eastern Bloc Europe to look like. Um, think of the nicest garden you've ever seen. And, th- and put in that garden, put a, a little Hansel and Gretel house in the middle of that garden with, you know, a lace curtain kind of in the doorway that's blowing in the wind. And we enter into this place. And let me tell you something. The spirit of the Lord was in that house. As soon as I walked in, I'm like, <gasps> and I look around and there's scripture in Romania all over the walls. And I can see like the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. Have you ever seen that booklet? 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. It's like stacked high on her desk. And she's got scripture open and she's got books open. And I'm like, what is this lady? Like, who is she? And so we get to hear her testimony. And what happened was when she was 14, she contracted leprosy. There's two types of leprosy. One that um, is very contagious. Those are the ones that take all your digits and your, your fingers fall off. It's horrible. That was, was incurable until they had a cure for it in the 80s. There's a second type of leprosy that tends to take your eyesight. It's not contagious. That's the type of leprosy that she had. So she was there as a 14-year-old, blind, and she prayed, Lord, she came to know um, Christ through the preaching of God's word at this um, leprosy colony. She got saved there. She said, Lord, I would have loved to have gone for the mission field. I know I can never go. Lord, if, if, you, if you heal my blindness so that I can read, I will dedicate my life to praying for you. So from 14 to age 90, this prayer warrior has not stopped praying. She has memorized all of the names, not just the names of the pastors in the Baptist Union in Romania. So she knows all of the Baptist, all of the Baptist pastors. She knows their wives and their kids. And I know this because she asked what city we're from. I said, we're from Brela. And then she said, oh, Pastor Marius, is that, is that the pastor you're with? I'm like, yes. And his wife, Nutsi. I'm like, yes. And their son, Oti. So she's demonstrating that she'd memorized because she'd been a prayer warrior all of these years. Listen, um, 
She committed her life to praying for the work of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in that country. And I couldn't help but wonder, like, how many people in this country have been saved as a result of her praying for the people that were going after those people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so often we put missionaries up on this pedestal like there's some super Christian that goes out and does stuff. But like, are we humble enough to say, listen, you can also serve the kingdom in, in a leprosy colony being locked up there for your entire life as you're pleading with the Lord for the pastors and the missionaries in your country. It's a beautiful testimony to us of the power of prayer. And when we read Acts 1.8, we often think of going to the nations. But I want to challenge you this morning. Some of the best work we can do is to pray, to pray for the nation. Don't stop praying. Listen, we desperately need people that are willing to go to the ends of the world. But we also need people who are willing to stay behind and pray like crazy. You guys need to pray for Jared and Lori in the days ahead. They're, fa- they're going to face an impossible task in the Philippines. And you guys got to pray for them. You got to pray for us as an organization. You got to pray for your pastor. You got to pray for the elders in the church. You got to pray for one another. So this Christmas season, when you, when you hear that two turtle doves song, when the 12 days of Christmas comes on the radio, stop at that moment and pray. That's what I want you to remember from today. When you hear that going forward, now please, I'm, I, I'm, I'm begging, pray. Pray like Simeon did and have his response. Because Simeon's response is beautiful. It's the thread of what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit, we saw that in Mary, right? Her response was, I'm your servant, do with me according to your word. And then Simeon's response here is, I can, I can die. I've seen my Savior now. I can die. See, our response to the power of the Holy Spirit working is faithful, humble obedience to the work of God and our servants to the King because we are His witness. I want you guys to see the thread this morning in the beginning of Luke that ties to Acts 1 verse 8. I want you to see it in Mary. I want you to see it in Simeon. But I also this morning want you to see it in Christ himself. Turn with me one more page as we look at Luke chapter 4. I want you to see God's power on display in Christ right now. This is now, we're fast forwarding 30 years from what we just talked about where Simeon held Jesus. Now Jesus begins his his ministry, he's baptized. The Spirit falls on him like a dove. Again, we see a Trinitarian passage in that. Verse 4 now, he begins his ministry. What does Luke want us to know about Jesus as he starts his ministry? Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. See that there? Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, is being tempted in the desert. And he faces that temptation. Then we get down to Luke 4, verse 14. Now Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. Again, it's the power of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. That, that, re, that power of the Holy Spirit, that's the same phrase what we see in Simeon. So Simeon, in obedience, goes to the temple because the Spirit told him to go there. Jesus begins his ministry in the power of the Spirit because the Spirit told him to go to Galilee. Where does Jesus go? Now we're back to Nazareth. Verse 15. We're back in Buffalo, so to speak. What's Jesus going to say? He's back with his home church and his home crowd. He's about to announce his ministry. Let's read it together here, starting in verse 16. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been, his custom, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, 
And he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Here's the first words out of the mouth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Guys, do you see this here? Here's the thread again that we're looking. Here's that piece of popcorn again. Right? Mary, the power of the Spirit upon her. Simeon, the power of the Spirit upon him. Now, Jesus himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Like, this is absolutely astounding. Think about what's actually happening right now, right? It's the Word, picking up the Word and unscrolling it and reading the Word. It's wild, right? He's picking up the scroll of Isaiah. And they, you know, scholars figured out that you can actually put all of Isaiah onto one scroll. So he's scrolling through that thing. He gets to Isaiah 61 and fulfills a 700-year prophecy. And the things out of his mouth are the words written by Isaiah for him to say, which is, this is what we want you to know. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, capital S. Why does Jesus say that? Why does he say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? I mean, he's Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. I mean, he, he could have just walked into the synagogue and said, I am the King of the world. At my command, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that I am Lord. I am the King of the universe. I spoke the heavens and earth into existence with my words. I am the Messiah King. Like he, he could have said that because that, all of that would have been true. But he didn't though. What, why? Like why does he say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Listen, he, he didn't use his authority as king in that very moment because Jesus was fully God and fully man. What I want you to see here is his humanity on display. We know this from Philippians 2, verse 6. It says this, Though he was born in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Just like Mary, just like Simeon, takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. Listen, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See Christ's humility here? He could have used his power as king, but he says, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon me. Just like Mary, just like Simeon, just like us from Acts 1.8. What does he say? Why is the Spirit upon me? Well, because this is now Jesus' mission statement. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's in the recovering of the sight of the blind, just like our blind lady in Romania. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and tucks it away. And what a declaration and what humility here. We see Jesus in his flesh, not using his power as king, but as a, a humble servant. So this is what we learn then. This is the beginning of Christ's ministry. This is the first things out of his mouth. So what we learn now is that all that Christ did in Luke's account and then into Acts, so all that, all that happens now in the Gospels as we read them, all of Jesus' ministry, all the miracles, all the teachings, all the healing, all the love that he showed, his ability to perfectly abstain from sin, 
and his suffering and his glorious resurrection, all of that is done in the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. Consider that this morning. All of that work is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Theologian Robert Stein wrote this about this text. He says the concluding summary emphasizes that Jesus' entire future ministry is to be understood as taking place in the power of the Spirit. All of it. It's wild. Do you see the, the book ends now in Jesus' ministry? Saying all, that's what he's saying here. All I'm about to do and all that you're about to witness in my ministry is done under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1.8, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. We have that exact same power in us that Christ used in his ministry, that Simeon used in his ministry, that Mary had in her ministry. Now, now, okay. Now let's turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I wanted just to make that popcorn thread for you this morning. And now in the next hour, I want to... Well, we don't have another hour. I'm already running out of time. But what I wanted you to see this morning, I wanted to connect the dots of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Luke's account. And so... The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and her response is humility and servanthood and praise. The power of the Holy Spirit comes upon a Simeon and his response is obedience and thanksgiving and joy and, and prayer. And we see the power of the Holy Spirit on Jesus and his response was, was perfection in life and in death and in his resurrection. And now we get to Acts 1 verse 8 again. The Holy Spirit is available to you and I. And I have to ask you this morning, what is your response then to that? Because we're getting an unbelievable promise out of the mouth of Jesus. It's the, the thing that he wants us to obey. Church, we are called to be his witness. The promise is the Holy Spirit. The imperative or the command there is, now you will be my witness. It's not like if you guys have time, if you think about it, if you're not doing anything on a Saturday afternoon. No, 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 no. You will be my witness. The power to hold the Holy Spirit comes with the responsibility of being his witness. That's to neighbors. That's to co-workers. That's students. That's to other students. And that is to the ends of the world. Listen, we are called to be the king's witness to the ends of the earth. Every follower of Christ has a role to play in that. I don't want to say this morning that we're all missionaries. We shall be missionaries in our neighborhood. That's incorrect. A missionary proper is someone who crosses language boundaries and geographical boundaries to go and be a witness of Christ. Not everyone in this room is a missionary right now. You can't be. There's only very few of you that actually be called to the task of a missionary. It's a very challenging task. Many of you are not up to it. I'll just be frank. The attrition rate on the mission field is really high. It's a really hard job. We're not all missionaries. We're all witnesses. That's the difference. Some of you, Lord willing, are missionaries. All of us are witnesses to the king. And so Kent Hughes wrote this, very helpful. He said, the command to be Christ's witness is for all true believers in him. Listen now. There can be no burden for distant, unreached peoples without a burden for unreached neighbors. So yes, we have a responsibility to the nations. Yes, we also have responsibility to our 
neighbors. Listen, every true follower of Christ in this church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he has placed you. So consider this week, the week ahead. I implore you, pray, Lord, where do you want me to be a witness this week? Like as, you, as you start to sense the Spirit coming upon you in that moment, and you know you should, are you going to be obedient or not? Right? John Piper said that there's only three types of people. Goers, senders, and the disobedient. Lord, don't raise up disobedient people in this church, we pray. Raise up senders. Raise up goers, we pray. Listen, we, we desperately need more missionaries that will go to the end of the world. I, I, I want to say that this morning. I want you to hear that. We need missionaries in this place, but that number will be very few. I know that. We need senders. All of you are senders. You guys are sending out the Garcias. Man, thank you. Send them out. Send out more. They need your prayer. Church, they need your finance. I'm so encouraged that part of the Christmas offering is going towards that. They, reality is we need funding for that. Be a good sender when it comes to that. But be a witness in all of that. Witness to your neighbors. Listen, a good sender is one who prays and finances and encouraging those who are being sent out. So will you commit to praying for the nations and commit to praying for those who are being sent out? by this church. Listen, we so need it. Would you pray for our organization? We so need your prayer. What we do is so spiritually opposed. We're so thankful to you. And I hope that you've seen from God's word this morning what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, his people, and that will fuel you this week and into next year to be a witness to the King.